The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Good morning, church. How are we? Good to be with you. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure to spend some time again. We are at the end of the book of Ruth. We have been in this series for the last five or six weeks. I've got to say, um, since September when I got to start preaching, I, I would say this has probably been my favorite series. I've loved this book. Um, you can credit that to Oshawa. It was his idea to, to go into this book, by the way. And um, what a rich book it's been. Would you pray with me for a moment as we invite God to help us hear him today? Holy Spirit, would you come now? That we would feel and hear from you in a particular way this morning. You are always with us. As simple as it sounds, when two or more are gathered, the presence of Christ is among us. I ask that you would help us to believe that, to feel that, and to see you this morning in your word, in your goodness, and what you're teaching us. Make much of yourself in what I say. I love you. Amen. All right. So... Uh, we are at the culmination, really, of the story. The story has kind of reached a, a point of resolution. Last week, we saw that Boaz took on the role of kinsman redeemer for Naomi and for Ruth and for the family of Elimelech. And now we get to see sort of the, the final realization of this completion. So look at, with me, we're going to jump right in, because we're going we're gonna to finish the last 10 verses, and then I'm going to go just do some takeaways from the book of Ruth, a brief recap. Verse, we're going to start in verse 13. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he, went, then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. These are the townswomen. Praise be to the Lord, to Yahweh. They're praising Yahweh, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Referring to the son that Ruth would have. This son, Obed, would renew and sustain Naomi in her old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons. That's no small thing. Especially in this time. Has given him birth. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David, 
Sorry, I'm, I'm already getting emotional. <laughs> this is so, so pr- precious stuff, guys. Um, so, we'll stop there for now. This final scene most likely is taking place at Naomi's home. And this story, the story's conclusion here is like a bright color print, a picture that's been developed from its original negative state. If you think back to the beginning of the book, how did the book open, right? It gives a, a brief account of death, right, of loss. Elimelech has died, Naomi's lost her sons, Ruth has lost her husband. And how is the book ending? With life. So like a negative picture, when you first develop it, it's dark, it looks bleak, it's not good. But as it gets time to develop and you see it unfold, it becomes this beautiful picture of life. Now verse, look at verse 13. Notice here, it says that Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went, into her, or went to her and she, uh, rather the Lord enabled her to conceive. This right there, the Lord enabling her to conceive, this is probably the most explicit account of God doing something directly divine in the story. Throughout the entire book, God is moving in ordinary ways. Not in, not in these extraordinary, miracle, sort of lightning from heaven, the sun stops moving. That's just not how God typically moves in and through our lives. It's through these ordinary kind of coincidences that God is moving throughout the story. Now, verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. The Hesed love of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz towards one another was so subversive, so incredible, that the people in the town were praising God, the God of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, Yahweh, for what what he has done, for his faithfulness and his love. Notice that they didn't have to go around teaching and preaching about Yahweh. They lived Hesed love, this subversive kindness that goes above and beyond what is expected of you. That's, that's all the preaching and teaching they needed to do. And it's infectious. Other people start to see it. And it makes its way around the town. That's because this kind of love cannot be contained. And it must be given out as it spills over into the lives of others. Verse 15. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Obed will sustain Naomi. He is the giver of life to her and sustains her in her old age. That really is a play on some irony, right? The book opens with Naomi what? In famine. She's without. She's missing. Food, literal physical food, nourishment. Life is kind of being sucked out of her, it seems. And now the book ends with these women saying, look at this son. He's going to take care of you. As you grow older and he grows into adulthood, he will provide sustenance for you. It's kind of a cool picture, a wrap-up. And then we get to that line about the seven sons. Naomi's daughter Ruth is more precious to her than seven sons. This is no small thing in this time that, that 
sons being the most valuable thing to a family, literally carrying on the family heir, uh, the family name, uh, inheriting the land, this was no joke. To say that Ruth was more valuable than seven sons, which, by the way, is the, the number of completion, right? This whole number. That's a big deal. Look at this quote from Carolyn Custis James. She says, Older women counted on their sons to care for them, to protect them from exploitation and the harsh elements of society, to be their voice, to stand up for their rights, and to preserve their father's name and estate by bringing the next generation of male descendants into the world. Ruth did all of those things for Naomi at great cost to herself and in a culture that tied her hands behind her back, denied her a voice, refused her access to the legal system, and regarded her as useless because she was a widow, a foreigner. It was all uphill for Ruth, but she did it anyway. Not even seven sons would have done as much. It's incredible. This act of love, ongoing acts of love of Ruth, means so much to Naomi. And then verse 16, the story becomes complete. While Naomi doesn't get her two sons back that she lost, or her husband, she is fully redeemed with the birth of Obed, this other son of Ruth. And she again gets to help Ruth by mothering this son. She cares for Obed and helps Naomi raise him. Now, we're moving right through this. Verses 18 to the end. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nation. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon. Just kidding. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So the book begins with an account of those who've died. And it ends with the account of new life that goes on, that carries on the family name. Genealogies at this time in the ancient Near East were a huge deal because they served to legitimize the importance of certain key figures in Israel's history. The accounts of who mothered who or who fathered who were the proof that someone was who they said they were. So it was no joke and it was a necessary part of Israel's history to have an account of who was related to who and by how that was done. What's interesting and what the narrator here doesn't know, but what you and I know, is that the providence of God and the hesed of Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi would lay the groundwork for the history of salvation that goes far beyond even King David, doesn't it? One who is greater than David comes from the loins of Boaz. In the dark, ugly days of the judges, the foundation is laid for the line that would produce the final Redeemer, the Redeemer of all people, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, comes from this line. I think this is the right quote. Yes. This book and this genealogy demonstrate 
that in the dark, wait, did I just read that? Maybe that's, that's what I just read. No, 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 I didn't. We're good. That in the dark days of the judges, the chosen line is preserved not by heroic exploits, by deliverers or kings, but by the good hand of God who rewards good people with a fullness beyond all imagination. These characters could not know what long-range fruit their compassionate and loyal conduct toward each other would bear. But the narrator knows. With this genealogy, he declares the faithfulness of God in preserving the family that would bear the royal seed in troubled times and in rewarding the genuine godliness of his people. The narrator sees King David, right? The story is obviously written after the birth of King David because there's an account here. But the narrator doesn't know that it goes far past him to even greater things. This is an incredible story. I want to give some takeaways to the book. Here's my five takeaways, okay? They're not every takeaway. There's a bunch of takeaways. There's a lot of good stuff in the book. These are Andrew Zeller's favorites. The greatest hits. First, the spirit of the law is greater than the letter of the law. This was last week's sermon. The spirit of the law, honoring the spirit of the law, is always greater than honoring the letter of the law, right? Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi each go above and beyond what is required of them. At the beginning of the book, we see Ruth and Orpah, these two widowed uh, women, daughter-in-laws of Naomi. One of them goes back to the land of their fathers, and Ruth stays because she goes above and beyond what is expected of her. It wasn't wrong for Orpah to leave. It wasn't wrong for her to to not stay with Ruth, or rather to to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. It was wise and prudent of her to go back to the land of her fathers to be taken care of. A widowed woman in that time was in danger, especially on her own. So going back to the land of her fathers was just wise, prudent decision. But Ruth goes above and beyond what is expected of her. Later, we see the the nearer kinsman redeemer last week, right? This other redeemer that was closer to Naomi and Elimelech in relation. And so he was the first one who had the opportunity to redeem the family name of Elimelech. But because of what it would cost him to do that, he wouldn't gain any of the land should he have a son with Ruth. He wouldn't get anything really out of it. And so he wisely chooses because he doesn't want to affect the inheritance that his current sons will receive to stay away, to not become the kinsman redeemer. He wasn't doing something wrong. He was being wise. But what does Boaz do? He goes above and beyond. Honoring the spirit of the law is always going to go above and beyond the letter of the law. Secondly, women lead with boldness in this book, don't they? Incredible, risk-taking boldness. Ruth takes an active role in leading out by practicing this hesed and looking for opportunities and capitalizing on those opportunities. So ladies, let me remind you, you are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. You're just not. 
you have the ability and the gifts to hear directly from God in the same way that anyone else does and to choose to act out of Hesed love. I want to encourage you to do that. Seek his presence, hear from the Lord, act out of that love. You are valuable. We love you. God's kingdom is not restricted to you in any way, shape, or form. Thirdly, a blessed alliance. Boaz, when we think of this story and we consider the role of Boaz, we butcher how incredible the actions of Boaz are when we think of him as just some hero who's rescuing the damsel in distress. We actually minimize how incredible his, his hesed love is when we do that. God is actually the hero of the story, shocker. To see Boaz's role as this romantic figure who gets the girl at the end, it just minimizes his, his, his acts of hesed love. He not only takes serious risks, but he partners with Ruth together by following her lead and meeting her request to be the kinsman redeemer on the threshing floor. It is Ruth, right? Naomi says to Ruth, go down to the threshing floor, get dressed up, smell good, take a shower, look pretty, all of these things, right? And then wait and see what Boaz will do, what he says. And Ruth does all of those things except she proposes to Boaz. And Boaz agrees. Boaz empowers Ruth in that way. Boaz's heart is moved not by his testosterone or by a desire to have a woman, but by the hesed love that he sees Ruth displaying for Naomi. That's what moves him. It's seeing the selflessness of another. And it, it just, it grips him. And he wants to be a part of it. The partnership of Ruth and Boaz creates a beautiful alliance between man and woman. Where both take risks to live out the spirit of the law. Both take risks to display subversive kindness and both listen and seek the movement of God together. This isn't primarily a love story. It's a story of the incredible potential of the full image of God, man and woman, working together to create a blessed alliance. A quote. It's not on the screen, but it's still good. Instead of stifling Ruth by insisting that things stay the way they are and making sure he maintains his superior rank and leadership over her, Boaz becomes the wind beneath her wings. He doesn't simply permit what she proposes. He embraces God's call on her life and promotes her efforts at increasingly greater cost to himself. Sacrifice. Together, they are caught up in a purpose that is bigger than both of them, but that is what frees them to do what must be done, even if it means breaking the rules in the eyes of their culture. They are pursuing the spirit of God's law, and Yahweh's smile rests upon this blessed alliance. The power of the gospel is at work. They are changing the world 
as they serve God together and he is changing them while they do it. Amen? (laughs) Takeaway four. Naomi's grief does not go away. It doesn't disappear. While the birth of Obed certainly brought joy and a sense of peace, I'm sure, to Naomi, and it secured for her and Ruth a future that the name of her husband Elimelech would go on, that someone would take on the land that they owned, All of those things happen. While that's all true, she didn't get back the two sons that died or her husband. That circumstance remains. She lives with that grief every day. It's easy to read the story and think how I wonder will God intervene in my life the way that he's intervened in Naomi's. And I just want to suggest to you that, yes, Naomi receives this incredible, tangible act of redemption, right? Obed, this this son. There is something that changes, and God is certainly a part of it. But she doesn't, the, the story isn't a completely happy ending. She has to live with this grief. And from what I understand, this kind of grief sneaks up on you when you least expect it. You don't see it coming. You remember the loss and the pain of a husband or a wife or a child. She still lived day to day in that difficulty and that reality, even after the birth of Obed. And so what's important to remember is that when Naomi realized that her circumstances were not a reliable indicator of Yahweh's hesed towards her, she began to turn from despair to hope. That was the key. When she recognizes that my circumstances don't tell me whether or not God is for me. He is still for me, despite my circumstances. His hesed love is there. It remains. It's steadfast, despite the loss. That's what turns and begins to turn her from despair to hope. There's another thing that contributes to her, her change. And again, it's a journey. Don't be confused and think that Naomi just flipped a switch and at the end of the book, she's this bright, bubbly, happy woman. Like, she's on a journey, just like the rest of us. And one of the biggest factors that contributed to her change, or at least the beginning of her journey, moving from a place of utter despair, call me Mara, Bitter, that's what she said. I've renamed myself. My name is Bitter because God has afflicted me and turned his hand against me, right? How do we go from that place to a place where there's some joy? One is recognizing that your circumstances aren't a perfect reflection of God's love for you. And secondly, she was willing to receive hesed from other people. Her community, in other words, was able to step up and love her in a great abundance and at great risk and cost to themselves. And that began to show her and prove to her that God really was still there, that he hadn't left yet. But notice, she had to be willing to receive it. 
and she had to be known. And Ruth and Boaz had to step up. And I think that's instructive for us as a community. That we would remember that we have to be able to share when we're struggling so that we have the opportunity to allow someone else to give us that hesed, to show us that kindness. And then we have to be willing, as those who are hearing from others, their struggles, their pain, their hurt, to actually step into that and to help walk with them and love them with hesed love. One Yale professor, Nicholas Woltersdorf, Wolt, 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 Woltersdorf. It's my best. It's, no, it's all right. He said this after, um, in the aftermath of his son's tragic death in a rock climbing accident. This is what he said. The world has a hole in it now. I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed people could not see. That's beautiful. It's not easy. Doesn't make things go away. Doesn't take away the grief, the pain. But it's true, isn't it? Our wounds, our pain, God intends to use for good. To love others, to love those in our community and to be able to sit with people who've gone through something similar. I love this, this song by um, Hillsong. I want to read a couple lyrics. This song is called Highlands. It's a song of ascent. From the gravest of all valleys come the pastures we call grace. A mighty river flowing upwards from a deep but empty grave. So I will praise you on the mountain and I will praise you with the mountains in my way. You're the summit where my feet are, so I will praise you in the valleys all the same. No less God within the shadows, no less faithful when the night leads me astray. You're the heaven where my heart is, in the highlands and in the heartache all the same. He is there. He's everywhere in the story, and yet he's never explicitly there, right? He's just, you see the Spirit of God moving throughout the book of Ruth and the hearts and lives of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, and eventually the townspeople, and there's nothing miraculous. There's nothing extraordinary. He hasn't left, though. He hasn't abandoned Naomi. He hasn't abandoned Ruth. Fifth, The characters in this story are not motivated to show Hesed towards each other out of self-interest. Now, do they, do they indirectly benefit by showing love and care for one another? Yes. But that's not their primary motivation. None of them are motivated out of self-interest. Ruth is concerned for Naomi and shows Hesed towards her to care for her, to find a redeemer for the family of Elimelech, so that the name would go on, right? Naomi is concerned for Ruth, that she would find a husband, and that's how she shows Hesed towards her, by encouraging her to take this risk and go down to the threshing floor and talk to Boaz and present herself to him. 
And Boaz and the rest of the townspeople are blown away by this love that they see between these two women, these two widows, and it causes him then to act out of that same kind of love towards both of them. While each character indirectly benefits from these, their choices, none of them are motivated by their own self-interest. They are all living selflessly. Finally, I want to spend a few minutes on the main theme of the book. The book's primary point, most scholars agree, and the Bible Project said it, so it must be true, is to show us the interplay between divine action and human choices. How do those two things work together? Divine action and human choices. Think back for a moment to the beginning of the book when we first read of Naomi's suffering. How overwhelmed she is by her new reality. Overwhelmed to the point of despair, right? She literally was despair personified in a person. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. What if that's where you were at? Have you been there? Maybe you're there now. Many of us may not be in that spot right now. Maybe we'll never be driven to that level of despair by God's grace. He would spare us. But for a lot of us, we either have been there or we are right there right now. And honestly, we lean into, we need to lean into the faithful, steadfast, tangible kindness of, of one another in order to be brought out of that place. That's, like I said earlier, what brought Naomi out of a place of utter despair towards, on a journey, on a pathway, she hasn't arrived, towards hope. It's the community loving her and caring for her. Remember that God is all, always on the move throughout this book in ordinary ways. There's no miraculous miracle, lightning from heaven. None of that stuff is happening. It's simply one man, it's one woman, committed to practicing Torah in a time, in a very dark time when no one else really was, committed to practicing Hesed, showing love and kindness towards one another, Committed to listening to God's spirit. What is God up to? How can God help us? Might Yahweh intervene? I think that this is Andrew's personal commentary now, okay? I think one of the most interesting things about this theme, the interplay between divine uh, action and human choice, is that the way that the characters get there in other words, the way that they get to see how God is moving, because he's moving in such ordinary ways that you could look at it and almost think coincidence. Maybe you wouldn't even think to take advantage of some of these things, right? There's all this space in between the scenes of this book. We, we read it so quickly and we think everything happened in three days. No, weeks passed between some of these scenes. Did Ruth and Naomi pray? Does it say that they prayed explicitly? We see some of their prayers, but it doesn't say, and they prayed that God would show them what to do next. But I think that it's implied because of the theme of the book. 
How will we know the divine actions of God if we don't seek his presence and see what he's up to? What, how is he on the move? What, what is he doing in this book? I think it's a very instructive final comment, I guess, from the book for us as a church, particularly for Central Bible Church. Are we a praying people? Are we motivated to see this church grow, revitalized, and changed because we want to see it look as it did back in the days of John G. Mitchell? Are we motivated to see the church change and grow and be revitalized because we want to prove other leaders in the city that they were wrong about us? We're not dying. Is that our motivation? Or is it simply God just seeking God to be with him? Like, that's all we have, guys. Seriously. We don't, that's all we have. Like, the reason that we want to go and love our community and share the good news of the gospel isn't so that we can prove anybody wrong or that we can return to the glory days. It's so that Jesus Christ would be made known. That he would be loved and served and cared for and made lovely in our community and in this right here. If we can't practice hesed together with one another... If we can't get honest and not play church games, right? And like, it's so easy. How are you doing? Ah, pretty good. I've been really busy lately. We, we need to like shoot each other down when we give the busy answer. Everybody's busy. Some of you are retired and you're busier than you've ever been. I've got three kids. They're all under four years old. I'm pastoring. I have a business. Like, I'm busy. We're all busy. Like, we're not allowed to give that answer to each other anymore. It needs to be honest. How are you doing? Don't ask it, by the way, if you don't want to hear an honest answer. But we need to be willing to be honest with one another so that we each have the opportunity to show this kind of hesed love that God has been teaching us about throughout this book. We have to be honest with one another. If we can't do it in here, why do we have, how in the world do we have a chance of doing it out there? That's crazy. And the only, like, if you feel like, I don't know how to do that, I don't know what that looks like, how do I even begin? Pray. You mean we just need to pray more? Yeah. I, I will be the first to admit, as, as a leader in this church, as a pastor, I have not done a great job of praying in this last season. I feel like I've been putting fires out. I can speak for the whole team when we say that that's how the first six months of our time together was. I'm sorry that I have not done a good job. I want to commit to you now that I'm going to do that better. And I want us to commit together to be a praying people. Can anyone name one movement of God throughout history that happened where people didn't pray? It doesn't exist. Like, it doesn't exist. This is all we have. Like, we need to spend time together asking God to show us, where are you at? He's moving all throughout the streets of this, of this neighborhood. All over the place. God loves to move in the streets. 
Where are you at? You spend an hour at the start of your day seeking him by meditating on his word, lamenting, crying out, praising him. Like you spend an hour in prayer and you come back and tell me it doesn't affect the way that you see him throughout the rest of your day. You just can't do it. Like it, it's impossible. You are clearly, directly more in tune with the spirit of God and the opportunities, right? He's giving us opportunities to seize, to take advantage of so that we might be able to show the Hesed love because there's nothing better that we get to do as Christians than see other people meet Jesus. Like, that's, that's what this is all about. All of this, everything in this, like, sometimes I, like, I'm prepping the sermon. I'm just like, dude, I don't want to just teach more stuff. Like, we, we're missing it if we think that this is the culmination. Like, this is not the culmination of our faith. More Bible facts is not the point. It's good. It's helpful. We need to do it. God's word is instructive. It's beautiful. Obviously, like, I love this book. But the greatest gift that God gives us is that we get to be like God and show others the grace that has been extended to us, the hesed that Jesus Christ has shown us. That's what we get to do. It doesn't happen, though. It just won't, like, we can have the best vision. We can have the most clear values. I can give you a PowerPoint presentation that will blow your socks off. If we don't seek his presence, it doesn't matter. It just straight up doesn't matter. Let's be committed to praying together. You're like, I don't really like the idea of trying to pray on my own for an hour in the morning. Okay, let's do it together. Seriously. I'm going to start on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 a.m. in this room, praying consistently and I'm telling you so I got to do it I would love for any of you to join me we don't stand a chance as a church of being of turning turning this around if you will if we're not going to pray together regularly some of you that's just not doable with work scheduling I get that pray in your homes Are you a part of a home community? Are you praying together regularly? Not just that, yes, for the needs that are in the group, certainly, but also that we would see what God is up to. Like, God, where are you giving us opportunities that we're just flat out missing? We're looking at stuff like, ah, it's a weird coincidence. I'll just kind of, like, God's giving clear out, like, he moves in ordinary ways all the time. Where is he giving us opportunity to seize the moment, to lead boldly? Let's be a people who do that well. We don't stand a chance if we don't do that well. Amen? I love you guys. Pray with me. Father, I we recognize that we we just what are we gonna do if we're not praying? Like 
if we're not seeking your presence, yes, you're always with us. You're always with us, God. When two or more are gathered, you're here. But seeking particularly the manifest presence of your spirit, God, we ask that we would sense that more often as a people. God, let it be. Let us be driven and compelled to pray. To spend time together in solitude, seeking your word and, and, and lamenting and, and praising you, God. Like asking you to show us what you're doing. No grand vision of mine or any of the other leaders is going to, to, to make us a better, cooler, more awesome, spirit-filled church. The only way we become a more spirit-filled church is when we seek your spirit regularly, often, together. Like we, we just pray that, I pray that you would overwhelm us with, with a feeling that we have to pray, that we just can't get away from it. We, we just got to do it often. So thank you, Lord, for the goodness of this, this subversive little book in days that were dark and crazy, that there were faithful men and women together, arm in arm, following Torah practicing hesed, going above and beyond the spirit of the law. I thank you for Ruth's example, for, for your goodness to us. And Jesus, ultimately, I thank you that you are hesed personified. Jesus, you, you are the true forever redeemer. You are the one, Lord, who has shown us unbelievable kindness kindness that doesn't even make sense that you would willingly choose to take on my shame, my guilt, my lack of discipline, my grief, despair. You know despair. You went to the cross. Like we serve a God who knows despair. Jesus, I pray that you would forgive us as a people for not praying and not seeking you earnestly. We recognize again today that we have no chance without you and your presence. You have given us the mind of yourself. The mind of Christ is in us. The spirit of God lives in us. And we just so regularly don't seek you. I know I don't, God. We don't look for ways that you're moving. And so I just pray that you would help us to become a people who are willing to do that regularly and often. That we might become people who get to show hesed towards strangers and neighbors. That strangers would become neighbors. That neighbors would become friends. That friends would become family of God. Let it be. Let it be, Lord. Amen take communion again this week. The body and blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you. That we might be able to walk together in unity to bring about his kingdom. Not so that we would learn more stuff or facts. That's not why he died died 
that the world might know redemption, that the world might feel hesed, real subversive kindness. And he shows that and we remember that every single week that we go over there and we dip that bread and the juice. That's why we do it every single week. It reminds us, grounds us that it's not about me. It's not even about this little church. It's about what is God up to and how are we bringing his kingdom? How is he restoring and renewing us? How is he doing that for the community of Montevilla? So go together, take communion. I'd encourage you to spend time maybe by yourself with a couple of others to pray. Seek God during these songs. We've got some extra time left in the service. These songs can go a little longer. Let's actually just start right now seeking God together. There's a few of us that will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you. Love you guys. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.